0: But in Revelation 19, there's another supper. And the second supper is called the Great Supper of God. It's very different than the married Supper of the Lamb. The guests invited to eat at the Great Supper of God are the birds of the heavens. And the food provided at the Great Supper of God are the bodies of the army of the beast and of the false prophet. In this supper, Jesus shows up not as a groom, In this supper, Jesus shows up as the conquering warrior. Notice the details of the description of Christ. He is described as riding a white horse. And the first thing we are told about him is his name. Actually, if we keep reading the details of verses 11 through 16, we notice that this rider on a white horse has many names. I counted four Known names and one secret name. In verse, let's look at these names and then we're going to look at what he does and how he's described. Look, notice his names. Four times we, we see a uh, reference to his names. In verse 11, the one sitting on it, on the white horse, is called Faithful and True. Now earlier, Jesus was pres- when Jesus presented himself to the church in Laodicea, he described himself as the Faithful. And true witness. Here in Revelation 19, Jesus acts not as a witness, but as a judge. The next line in verse 11, we are told that this writer judges and makes war in righteousness. So his name tells us that he is faithful and true in what he judges and in what he fights. He is faithful and true to God's plans and carrying out. God's judgment and in executing God's wrath. Now, some may feel very uncomfortable at the picture of Christ as judging and making war. But remember, he is making war and judging the beast, the false prophet, and those who follow them, whom the beast and the false prophet has incited to act against Christ. Even in judging and making war, Christ carries the name of faithful And true, both his judgment and the final battle he will engage in are a manifestation of his faithfulness and of his truthfulness. In verse 12, um, this writer is, uh, we are told about another name. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Have you seen kids who say, I have a secret, but I can't tell you. People say, oh, I know something that you don't know, but I cannot tell you that you can't know it, but you need to know that I know it and you can't tell me and can't make me tell you. It's foolish kids' talks and just trying to get you to, to, to know that they have something that, 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 that you don't have. Is that what's going on here? Jesus has a name. It's a secret name. You can't know it, but you need to know that he has a secret name. That you just can't know. No, it's not childish, mindless teasing. Something else might be, is going on with a secret name. In ancient times, commentators say that in ancient times, magicians believed that knowing someone's name was a means of having power over them. And we know that the beast and the false prophet is using sorcery as well to try to deceive the people of the earth, to follow them against Christ. In bringing the name of Christ here as a secret name that no one knows except Christ, could be that this is a means by which Christ says he has a name that no one knows, and therefore no one has power over Christ. It's a way of suggesting that no one can manipulate Christ, by by somehow knowing his name and trying to use it in a manipulative way. It's a means of showing the supremacy of Christ. In verse 13, after we are told that he has a secret name that we don't know, only he knows. In verse 13, we are told other names and these ones are clear and made known to us. In verse 13, the writer is called, the, he says in verse 13, the name by which he is called is The word of God. Oh, this name clearly shows that the writer is Jesus Christ. In the gospel of John, John's way of introducing Jesus to us was to call him the word. Remember John 1? 1? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then a few verses later, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, here in Revelation 19, the Word of God appears again, but in the form of a conquering warrior. The fact that this writer comes to judge and to make war, and yet his name is the Word of God, suggests that the means by which the writer judges the people of the earth is through the Word of God. The judgment of this writer is based on what he has revealed to us. I love how one Bible interpreter said, God's chosen instrument of judgment is the words of Jesus, who is the word of God. And that's why as, as members of this congregation, we care deeply about the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of God. And the only way we know about Jesus and about his salvation and about his coming judgment is by reading the Bible and, or hearing someone teach it to us. That's why we encourage one another to, to read the word regularly meditate upon it to seek to apply it in our lives it is through the word that we get to know about the word who became flesh and it is through the word of god that we get to know about the word who will come as a rider on a white horse to judge us based on this word and to judge us through his word christ judges and makes war against his enemies with what he reveals and with what he speaks. In verse 14, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen how the beast and the false prophet have sought to influence and lead the kings of the earth and the people of the earth to lure them into the false worship. They have been able to amaze the people of the earth. The beast and the false prophet uh, are the greatest. At one point, you remember in, in chapter 13, uh, 12 and 13, people say, Who is like the beast? Here we see the rider on the white horse, and he has a name written on him, that he is a true king of kings. He is a true sovereign over the lords and over the, 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 those in power of the earth. When we ponder the name King of Kings attributed to Jesus, we acknowledge that there is no other higher authority than Jesus. Now, friends, I wonder if you view Jesus this way over your life. You know, it's easy to say, yes, I acknowledge and declare Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Could you say, Jesus is King of my life? And he's Lord of my life. It's easy to acknowledge that Jesus is king for somebody else. It's easy to hope that Jesus would be king for someone in your family. Is he king of kings and Lord of lords in your life? In my life? Rebellion against God is manifested whenever we fail to acknowledge or live out that Christ is the highest authority even over us that he's a king and the Lord of our own lives. These are the names, the four names that have been revealed to us, plus a secret name that we know about, but we don't know what it is. But notice that in this description of Christ, it's not only names that we are told. We are told how he is described. He's described his eyes, his diadems, his clothing. Uh, Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This means that his eyes can penetrate through everything. He sees everything. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. Nothing can be hidden from, from, from his sight of what's going on in our own hearts, our thoughts. Consider just this past week. Is there any thought that you have harbored in your heart or mind that you would be ashamed of God knowing? His eyes see through it all. He has many diadems, we are told in verse 12. In Revelation, uh, the beast is described as having seven diadems as a sign of royalty, as a sign of pretending to be royalty. Here, we are told that Christ has many diadems. In other words, Christ's royal appearance is way higher than the beast's pretense to royalty. Look at verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The blood of Christ here. The blood that's, that's, dri- that's, that's on the robe of Christ here refers to the blood of the enemies which Christ has slain. Christ as a warrior appears not only as a conquering king, but as also as a commander of armies. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. In this picture of, of, a, of a warrior king, who is followed by an army? It's interesting that the only one who has blood spotted on his robes, on his robe, is Christ. The rest of this army is all dressed in white, bright linen clothing. It's not the kind of clothing you expect to go in a battle, right? And yet, the only one who has the marks of having battled the battle is Christ. He's the only one who has drips of blood on his robe. That means that even though Christ is followed by a great army, the only one who fought the battle is Christ. And notice what he does. In verse 12, we are told that he judges and makes war. In verse 15, we read that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This shows that Christ's means of conquering the nations comes through what comes out of his mouth. It is not the strength of muscles. It is not the strength of of war equipment. It's what comes out of Christ's mouth. That is the means by which Christ strikes down the nations. And then the rod of iron is a picture of exercising absolute authority in such a way that no one can resist that authority in a successful way verse 15 he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty in other words the second coming of christ will be for the purpose of executing the wrath of god against the humanity that has continued to rebel against god now this entire picture from verse 11 to verse 16 of of the conquering warrior, this entire picture of Christ is very different than the picture we saw of Jesus in Revelation 1. Remember in Revelation 1, the first appearance of Christ in a majestic way before John, John saw Jesus standing among seven lampstands among the churches. But here Jesus is standing on a white horse He is coming on a white horse. When Jesus came for the first time in the flesh, he came as a baby and rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of of someone who is bringing peace. But in ancient times, riding on a horse was more like the picture of someone who is ready for battle. That's exactly what we get in Revelation 19. Jesus is coming ready to wage war against all those who are following the beast and the false prophet. But all these descriptions of of Christ as a warrior, as a successful conquering warrior, come from a prophecy from Isaiah 63. And I want to read those verses to us this morning just to see the magnitude of the similarities, the parallels, the fulfillment that we see in this picture of Revelation 19 to what God prophesied in the Old Testament. Just listen to Isaiah 63. You don't have to turn there. Verses one, and th- 1, 2, and 3. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom was the, the area that was opposite the enemy of God's people. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness. Mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel." In Isaiah 63, it is God who speaks these words. Yet in Revelation 19, these words describe Jesus. He is the one who executes the judgment that God prophesied to bring. Christ came once to bring salvation when he rode on a donkey in Jerusalem. And in the following week was crucified by his own people, even though he came to bring them peace. Oh, how many even today still refuse to receive Christ and would rather would rather live life opposed to him, apart from him. Christ came once to bring salvation, but he will come again. He will come again to bring judgment and destruction of all wickedness, of all rebellion, and of all those who have followed the beast. But before the battle takes place, so far we have seen that the description of this conquering warrior. But so far nothing has taken place at this point. Before the battle takes place, the angel of God issues a call to the great supper of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This invitation to the birds to come and eat was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, where the kings Gog and Magog came to make war against God's people. And in Ezekiel 39, verses 17 and 18, God commanded his prophet to speak to the birds of the air to come because God was planning to make the enemies of Gog and Magog to make them a feast for the birds. It was an imagery of of describing total and merciless destruction. That God will have no mercy against his enemies on that day. Well, that imagery is used again here in Revelation 19. The feast that God is preparing for the birds is called the Great Supper of God. It's a great supper, not because it is a supper you want to go to. It is great because God's judgment and wrath will be great. And no one will be able to escape it. The people whom whom, whom Christ will grant to be eaten by the birds are described in six categories. Look at verse 17 again. The flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and riders, the flesh of all men, small and great. In other words, no category of people will be excluded from this, ground, from this crowd. No high status will be high enough to protect people from this supper. All those who have rebelled against God, continue to, who continue to live a life of rebellion, are included in this picture. All those who have been deceived by the beast and the false prophet to live in idolatry will be part of the menu of that great supper. At the moment when we would expect to hear the details of the battle, when we would see how will this battle flesh out, we are surprised to hear that no actual battle took place. The beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into the lake of fire in verse 20. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The battle lines are drawn. The armies are ready to fight. And it's like, okay, can we see some action? And there's no action. It's like coming for a show. And the show says, sorry, guys. Uh, the show is canceled. There's no more There's no more action to watch. Why? Because the beast and the false prophet, verse 20, the beast and the was captured, and with it, the false prophet. And the false prophet is described here again as the the one who was in the presence of the beast, who had the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The lake of fire is another expression for hell. The beast and the false prophet are captured by Christ. Notice that all that Christ has to do in this apparent battle is to capture the captain, the two captains who are leading this army, the beast and the false prophet. This means that Christ shows his power to overcome the beast and the false prophet and their army by merely capturing the commander this means that the beast appears strong and powerful before the battle she's able to gather the kings of the earth to come against christ as we have learned earlier in revelation but here she is ready for battle and she is snatched captured and thrown into hell i love how paul hoskins uh what he what he says to say about this there's no final tug of war between the two powers The power of Christ is so abundantly superior to the power of the beast that the final battle does not look like a battle at all. This suggests that the beast's attempt to make war with the lamb will be a total failure, an utter embarrassment. After the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, those who follow them become the food of the birds of the air, just as God had decreed. And this is what we get in verse 21. And the rest were slain. By the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a gruesome picture of the great, awful, scary supper of God. This means that no matter how confident the beast and the followers might be now, no matter how strong and powerful they think they are, no matter how much we might think of them as being powerful, when Christ will appear, the triumphant warrior, he will bring utter destruction and he will do it without the help of his army. He will do it alone. This text is another appeal challenging us to see how foolish it is to follow the way of the beast. No matter how successful or confident her paths may look now in the present time, the second coming of Christ will reveal who is truly powerful. When Christ comes, he will so destroy the beast and her followers that it will look like a gruesome and bloody meal which God prepares to offer to the birds of the heavens. Friends, in this passage, we have these two suppers, the married Supper of the Lamb and the Great Supper of God. In the first one, God invites people to his feast. God invites people to his feast and calls them blessed. But in the second, God invited the birds to feast upon the people who have followed the beast. We either come and eat at the marriage supper of the lamb or otherwise we will end up being eaten. Friend, I wonder which supper would you rather go to? In one, you come to rejoice and be served a great banquet. In the other, you become the many of the birds. Because Christ appears as a triumphant conqueror who will eradicate all unrighteousness, all evil, and all rebellion. Let's pray. Lord God, you have revealed your ways with us in a way that appeals to our desire for food, our desire to celebrate, our desire to, to enjoy life. But you put before us the two options of the two great suppers. Father, we pray that we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and tastes to desire to eat, and belong to the supper of the Lamb. Father, we pray that you would awaken our sensitivities to recognize that no matter how much the beast lures us and convinces us that her ways are more powerful, that her ways are more pleasurable, that her ways are more confident, Father, help us to see that in the end, her ways lead to destruction. Help us to see the true beauty, the true value the true enjoyment of what your people will get at the great supper of the lamb and help us to trust in your power to overcome the dragon the beast the false prophet and all those who rebel against your ways father we want to acknowledge you that you are a mighty god that you are a god worthy to be trusted worthy to be followed even though in the present time it looks like the beast and the dragon are overpowering We know and believe that when Christ will return, he will be conquering all enemies. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.